Hey, welcome to The Scrum, WGBH's politics podcast. I'm Adam Riley, and I'm here with my colleague, WGBH senior editor Peter Kadzis. Peter, greetings. Greetings and salutations, Adam. Later in this episode, you're going to hear a conversation with Dan Rivera, the mayor of Lawrence. He recently made headlines by rage-tweeting about the size of the Democratic presidential field and including Massachusetts Congressman Seth Moulton on his short list of non-essential candidates. But first, Peter Kadzis, you have some musings on the weird situation we've seen develop around the Wynn Casino in Everett. Just a few days ago, we heard that Wynn was apparently thinking about selling that casino to MGM, which operates the new casino in Springfield, that would have forced MGM to sell its Springfield operation to someone else and wreaked a whole bunch of havoc in the western part of the state. But then a few days later, Wynn and MGM said talks were up and they were each going to sit tight. What just happened here? Well, that's a good question. Let, let me give you my theory, and it's only a theory based on reading the newspaper and uh, I think a little common sense and a dark imagination. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think Win the, the the Win organization, specifically Matt Maddox, um, is was really ticked off at the way the state of Massachusetts treated him. You're talking about the fine that was uh, the, well, leveled yes. against. I Wynn? said I don't think they're ticked off about the thirty-five million dollar fine. That was a, by the way, a, a fair and equitable amount. Although some people say it's not enough. Um, I, I think it, you know, you know I've done the math and that... that, that you think that's a real penalty, that's a meaningful a, that penalty. That is a meaningful penalty. I don't think it was the $500,000 that Matt Maddox was personally fined. And look, even if you're a rich guy, $500,000 is a lot of jing. What really ticked him off, I think, is the fact that he was sentenced to or required to go to some sort of sensitivity training, um, executive coaching or something like this. That is my theory that that's what really ticked him off. And you know what? I don't blame him. It's, it's an extension of the, the culture of therapy into the world of business. Look, he did not handle himself well in, in the aftermath of Steve Wynn dropping his pants. You're talking about all the sexual yeah. harassment or assault um, allegations against but, Wynn. But come on, spam me the therapy here. Um, well, or you could argue if you're gonna, if you're troubled by it, if you don't think Matt Maddox handled himself well and you have these abiding concerns, don't let him keep the license. And yet the state did. Right. Because let's face it, they want to get, everyone wants to get on with business. All I'm saying is that the state of Massachusetts, the Gaming Commission, made this personal. This is more than jerking the state around, though. It doesn't make a lot of sense for Wynn to have a casino here in Massachusetts. It made sense when Steve Wynn was running the company. Wynn's a Massachusetts boy. Opening a casino here, you know, uh, allowed him to strut his stuff in front of his boyhood friend, Bob Kraft. But um, look, Wynn Casinos is a Las Vegas-based, Asian-scented um, gambling concern. They're not in the regional gambling business. That's yeah. what that's what Everett is all about. Um, they've built, a, by all accounts, a great casino. They've done, to my very skeptical mind, an excellent job of cleaning themselves up. But... 
the Gaming Commission let it get personal. Just so I'm clear here, do you think that after uh, the Gaming Commission said you got to take leadership training or sensitivity training, whatever the right phrase is, do you think Matt Maddox thought, screw it, I'm going to unload this, I I don't need to deal with this, and then they talked to MGM and and they decided not to move ahead with that, or was this sort of a faux dalliance with MGM. I I don't see any um, collusion, if you will, (laughs) here. You know, um, Maddox laid this trap very well in a in a um, phone call to shareholders. By the way, this was reported by the Boston Business Journal. He said, well, we have to think, you know, there is a possibility. Maybe we could maximize our profits by selling what we've built. Ingenious, ingenious. MGM, by all accounts, isn't doing well in Springfield. It's not their fault. It's not Springfield's fault. I personally don't think the market's there. Uh, Look, I wouldn't be surprised if in several several years' time, a Connecticut casino buys out MGM and closes it. It's a tough situation. But this business of MGM being up for sale, that doesn't that doesn't go away. Maybe it's not a bad thing. Mm, It raises questions in my mind about how smart the Gaming Commission was when they gave Wynn the license to operate in Everett. And I guess now, you know, sale of uh, the the Wynn Everett facility has been raised as a possibility. That you can't put back in the the tube of toothpaste, so to speak, right? I mean, people are always going to have in the back of their mind, well, they could always sell. They could always sell, and maybe at some point that would be a good thing. But it's not a good thing right now. So do you think the legislature right now has second thoughts about the wisdom of moving ahead with casino gambling a few years back when we took this huge step as a state? You know, it's hard to say. Look, the legislature is an 18th century deliberative body trying to dictate how to operate in the 21st century world. I'm not sure they're up to the task because the very idea of delegating authority is just foreign to them. I think the legislature made a huge mistake, huge as the president would say, um, when they allowed three casinos to open up in Massachusetts. Now, the argument was politically it was necessary to get the support, and I understand that. But if the casinos themselves are not going to be viable, what's the sense of having them? You said the legislature has a hard time delegating authority. But in this case, they have to a large extent by saying to the Gaming Commission, all right, you guys are in charge of this. Where do you see the legislature having trouble backing off? Your point is taken. They did delegate to the Gaming Commission. I suppose my beef is really with allowing three casinos there. But look at the way the uh, marijuana business has unfolded in Massachusetts, and look at the way the casino gambling business has unfolded in Massachusetts. No one is going to accuse these as being smooth rollouts. Um, And the legislature, you know, bears some responsibility. It's not fair to put all the the blame on them. Gotcha. Look, I think MGM playing footsie with with win. You know, raises real questions in my mind about the competence of the Gaming Commission. That was my next question. Not their honesty. Maybe 
their life is just at an end, that we should get a clean slate, get a new group of people in, hmm. and not so much begin again, but start afresh. There's only one measure here, and the measure is the real world. How well has this worked out? Could it have worked out worse? Sure it could have. But I wouldn't say it's exactly worked out well either. All right, on to our next segment which we probably could call the summer of Dan Rivera's discontent, even though it's still not technically summer. After New York Mayor Bill de Blasio jumped into the presidential race, Rivera, who is backing Senator Elizabeth Warren's presidential campaign, sent some very testy tweets. For example, adults in the party need to say there is no reason a junior U.S. representative from Salem, Seth Moulton, should be running, when the senior senator from Massachusetts, Elizabeth Warren, has been in for months. Same with Senator Gillibrand and Bill de Blasio. To voters, this is chaos. And a presidential campaign is a battle of ideas and wills. Harm will be done. The electorate will be confused and turned off, assuring a second Trump term. And this is not just about Seth Moulton. He is a glaring example. This is about 24 Dems in the most important election in years. For me and the people I represent, there is too much at stake. The Moulton campaign then fired back in a statement which read in part, this is a case of the political establishment telling Seth not to participate in the democracy he risked his life to defend. Oh, give me a break. We're more focused on what Democratic voters in early states are saying, not what campaign surrogates for the Republican governor are saying. That, of course, was a jibe at Rivera's endorsement of Charlie Baker in last year's governor's race. For the record, Rivera, like Moulton, is a military veteran. I sat down with Rivera outside Lawrence City Hall recently to talk about this exchange and his broader concerns. What angered me most was that we have gotten to the point where there's 24 people running for president from the Democratic Party. And it's not that there couldn't be 24 different opinions about it, but you can't win you know, fighting 24 people. You can't even sort out who's running with 24 people. And I just kind of got tired of it. I'm a Democrat, you know, and people will argue that because I supported the governor. Um, people will argue that because, you know, I have pretty conservative views about money. Um, but at the end of the day, I want a Democratic president like anybody else, but who's a Democrat in the Democratic Party. But there has to be, it can't just be chaos. It can't be an open fight. So. When I see the, pres- the, the, the mayor of the city of New York get into a race where there's already a senator from New York, when I see a congressman from Massachusetts get in the race when there's already a senator from Massachusetts, you know, a congresswoman from Hawaii getting in the race um, when there are, you know, it's just, it just gets, it gets when there's so many people in the race of high quality too, you know. I got nothing against the mayor, uh, Mayor Pete, whatever his name is. Um, but he gets into the race after Kamala Harris is in the race. After all, like, so it gets, I, I kind of got myself jeeped up, and I probably, you know, it, it, don't, you probably shouldn't tweet when you're angry, but I got angry. You send these couple of, of pointed tweets. Were you at home, by the way, when you when you tweeted this stuff? It was it was morning, and I was home. Okay. Uh, I, I, part of me wanted to ask if you were in your pajamas, but that would be inappropriate to ask of an elected official. So I was just—I I don't wear pajamas, but I was—I was not dressed for work yet. <laughs> All right. So, so uh, you send this tweet, and then, or these tweets, and then it kind of becomes a news story in its own right. Were you expecting that? I was not expecting that. I tweet a lot, and no one listens, and so 
I didn't think anybody was going to listen to this, even though I tagged specifically the chair, uh, the national chair of the party, and um, you know, and Speaker Pelosi. But I didn't think anybody would listen. What was the range of reactions? So from people that I see on the feed, my, my constituents, people who are Democrats who aren't elected or appointed positions, they agree. They think it's a, it's chaos. Anybody who's been following it for long, presidential politics for a long time, they agree that this is this is something like unseen and unheard of. And uh, so that piece of it, um, no electors just talked to me about it. Um, not the National Party chair, nothing, uh, nothing from Speaker Pelosi's office, um, nothing from the State Party chair. No, I, I think. Um, they're just not dealing with it. They're they're running with the party line that it, that more people is good for for the democracy, and I, I think that's not true. The reality is is that you're not going to get the best candidate in this process. What you're going to get is the the candidate who can get a plurality. You're not going to get the, cal- the candidate who can, who's going to have the, you know, um, the overarching support from everybody. You get so many people in there taking so many few pieces of it. Um, and but so- that doesn't mean necessarily that you won't get the best candidate right it's a you won't you don't need a majority of votes to win this nomination but you could still end up like you're with elizabeth warren right this could in a way work out to her benefit just potentially it's it's possible that she could be the nominee because there's so many people running i i just don't see it i just don't see it that way i mean i've been an elected official for six years but i've been doing campaigns for a long time and a crowded field is a problem. It's a really problem because it, it takes away from the attention of the important issues. It gets you down into uh, the weeds on issues that no one ever thought was going to be an issue. Um, and then you have to stay out of a position on where you may never even have to make a decision on that issue. Um, I don't know. I Again, the, the amount of energy and effort that puts put into deal with 24 candidates puts the party behind the eight ball when they have to go against that one person. And again, what, they, what the Republicans got with 16 candidates wasn't their best candidate. They just all kind of fell in line and supported him in the end of the day. Well, they all fell in line and supported him, but he won, right? You know, he didn't win the popular vote, but he, he managed to win the presidency, which was the big goal for them. Yeah. But we, he's not here. Because remember, we, we want to send somebody who can beat Donald Trump, but who can also govern the best, too. Like, it does, it does no good to send somebody who can win and then does an equally awful job. Did you think at all about making the point that you did about the size of the field and arguing that it wasn't going to be a good thing ultimately without calling out Congressman Seth Moulton? No, because it's not about Seth, but Seth is the most glaring example for me. I'm sure that uh, people in New York will find de Blasio as the glaring example for them. Um, And it's not about senior or anything. It's just like to look at a field that includes your senior senator and think, ah, now I'll be better than her. Let me just, let me run. That's a problem for me. And I think there's a little bit of, of sexism in it as well. Uh, when de Blasio gets in and Hillebrand is already in, where Moulton gets in and Warren's already in. This was 1975. You did that, and you, your political career would be basically over. I mean, you don't, and it's not about waiting for your turn. People are like, well, then, you know, what happened with, um, you know, Ayanna Presley? And that's a, it's a totally different thing. It's one on one. It wasn't like, oh, there was only, we were about to night. The senator, night Senator Warren, like people think we did with Hillary Clinton, and he decided to get in the race. That's different. He looked at 24, uh, 23 other candidates. He thought, "Yeah, I'm gonna get into." I don't know how many people were in when 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 the Congressman Warren got in, but he looked at those many candidates too and thought, "Yeah, I'll get into." And to me, this thing is not a game to us. There's so much at stake that you gotta be, you know, 
I think you have to have a different perspective on why you want to run and win. I want to ask you about one other person you called out. Why focus on Buttigieg? Because it seems to me, you know, Seth Moulton's been in the race for a couple of weeks. I can't remember exactly how long. His poll numbers don't show that people are excited about a Moulton candidacy. It's hard to argue that he has any kind of momentum. But you can argue that with Pete Buttigieg. He's right there with Elizabeth Warren, your preferred candidate, at, you know, third or fourth place in the polls. Uh, not really close to Biden right now, but not far away compared to a lot of other candidates. So. Uh, is it, in a way, patronizing to voters who are excited about Buttigieg's candidacy for you to be dismissing him as someone who's not legit? There are roughly, on paper, about 80,000 people that live in Lawrence. And if you get into the, um, the number of undocumented folks we have, you get to 85, 87 pretty quick. It's a community of 100,000 people. That's not, I'll check again, but I think it's 100,000 people. Marty Walsh has three times that that live in this community. One would think as an operational piece, not can he talk pretty, because I, 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 most guys who have a great way of expressing their philosophy and ideas spend a lot of time doing that and not really running the systems. And so for me, I want somebody who's gonna run our government, which is in desperate need of running well. Um, I don't need somebody who, can, who, who has really nice things to say. And so I feel like there's all these candidates who have all these great things to say have no experience doing those things. And Senator Warren has a hundred times more experience than Pete does running anything and attacking and fighting for our causes. Um, that's why I mention her. You know, because it, it, Kamala Harris was the attorney general for the state of California. You know how people live in California? It's like the seventh largest economy in the world. Yeah, it's like a country. And the week would look that somebody that's, you know, that has less responsibility than Marty Walsh is running for president against these great women is an issue to me. So, so then he also looked at the field, which included all those people, and said, well, he's a veteran. Well, I'm a veteran, too. I get that. And maybe there wasn't a veteran in the, in the race, but I'm pretty sure there was. Um, and the only one that could get a pass on all of this is, is Vice President Biden because he was the vice president. He could take his time to, to run anytime he wants. He was the vice president of the United States. Did you check in with the Warren campaign before sending the tweet? No. I think they would have told me not to do it. Did you hear from them after you sent it? No. No, I did not. I assume that you would much rather, if, if Elizabeth Warren does not end up becoming the nominee, that you would back, say, Pete Buttigieg in a heartbeat if he were the nominee over... President Donald Trump. Am I right about that? 100%. But, and here's yet another problem with this 24 people. Not all of their people will do that. How many percentage of, of uh, what percentage of Bernie Sanders voters ended up voting for Donald Trump? This is what I'm telling you. You create a fringe element inside the, inside the electorate that then goes out, who's not motivated, by the way, to vote against the party candidate. I'm going to be a, a supporter of whoever, whoever the Democratic Party sends out. Um, but we would be foolish to ignore the signs of a crowded field for the Democratic Party, just like uh, the Clinton operation was foolish to ignore uh, the signs of uh, a weak financial um, economic message, uh, the idea that you needed to go to different places, a bunch of stuff that I didn't have any privy to, but other people now are saying were kind of the reasons why they didn't win. But I'm shocked that no one else is saying this. And it's not because I'm wrong. I think it's because they're afraid to say, yeah, these are too many people. Cause what if one of them wins? Oh my God, and then I said they, could, they shouldn't have run. 
So, Peter Kadzis, do you think that Dan Rivera is right to be worried about the dizzying number of Democrats who are currently running? I think it's a very reasonable concern. Before we go any farther, I want to say, if I ever were to find myself on a foxhole, which at my age is not likely to happen, I'd want Dan Rivera by my side. And I hope Senator Elizabeth Warren realizes how lucky she is to have the support of, you know, such a solid salt-of-the-earth guy. He makes a lot of sense to me. And what I like about it is he, he's an apostle of common sense. So when you say you think he makes sense, what to your mind is the greatest practical risk for Democrats when you've got two dozen people, maybe more, running? Is it that uh, there's going to be a fragmentation in the party and some people won't support the other candidate when the general rolls around? Is it that the good candidates don't get enough attention? Is it a fundraising thing? Is it all the above or maybe something else? Well, it's all of the above. Um, my views a little might be a little different than uh, Mayor Rivera's. I, I view this election as it, 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 it's about independent voters. And I think this, um, this crowded field, this overly crowded field, could give independence the idea that the Democrats are the party of uh, self-involved navel gazers. Uh, I mean, it's, it's really shocking that de Blasio, who has big ethical questions hanging over his head about his use of money, is running for president. You know, David Bernstein, who writes the Talking Politics column for us, reports that de Blasio's motivated by the fact that Pete Buttigieg, the mayor of a small city, had the nerve to run, so he's going to run. Buttigieg may be good at, you know, cleaning snowbound streets, but he has absolutely no qualifications for being president of the United States. He just doesn't have the experience. He's an incredibly articulate person. I enjoy listening to him. But um, as Mayor Rivera said, comparing him with Senator Harris or Senator Warren, um, it's a joke. So when Dan Rivera says that he'd like to see... Democratic grown-ups or Democratic adults tell certain people either not to get in or to get out. Who, to your mind, are the figures who might be capable of doing something like that? Oh, I don't know if it's possible these days. I mean, I I, I applaud his thinking. I, I'm 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 just not sure that's possible. I mean, um, look, this is a matter of self-restraint, a quality that our culture has increasingly come to reward. Or the lack of, you know, Edmund Burke a couple of hundred years ago wrote that, you know, something like the less restraint you apply to yourself, the more you invite from outside. This is a very self-involved, ego-driven field. And by the way, I I don't mean the senators or the governors. I mean some of the more marginal candidates here. And I think it it could potentially hurt the ultimate Democratic nominee with independent voters. So the only good thing here is it's a long way off. But what I really like about this exchange is you've got a duly elected local official, the mayor of Lawrence, who just decides to say what's on his mind. Um, And I think the Moulton campaign's um, snarky little response is beneath contempt. 
All right, that is going to do it for this installment of The Scrum. Peter Kadzis, thank you, as always, for your pointed analysis. This was a good one, Adam. And, of course, thanks to you for taking the time to listen. You can catch The Scrum every week on the various platforms people use for such things, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, you name it. And if you haven't already, we'd love it if you subscribed. We would also like to hear from you with comments, questions, or concerns, either by email, we are at scrum at wgbh.org, or on Twitter, I'm at Riley Adam, and Peter is at Kadzis. Our engineer for this episode was John Parker, and we got essential production help from Andrew Massawa. I'm Adam Riley. The Scrum is a production of WGBH News. WGBH News.